Hello and welcome to the Antifada, where unrest is best. I'm Jamie Peck. I'm Sean KB. I'm Andy. And we are here with an excellent guest today. His name is Kazembe Balagoon. He is a writer, cultural producer, and activist who lives in the Bronx. How you doing, Kazembe? I'm doing wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for coming. Um, we were talking before the show. You've done a lot of cool things. You want to tell us a little bit more about yourself? Uh, sure. So, um, once again, my name is Kazembe Balagoon. I, um, I wasn't born with that name, but that name was given to me in 1990s. Um, I changed my name. Um, Kazembe means uh, uh, philosopher, wise and gifted leader in the Shona language. And Balagoon uh, means um, warrior in Yoruba. Um, and the last name I took from uh, Kwesi Balagoon, who was a member of the Black Panther Party and a member of the, uh, uh, the Black Liberation Army, who was a bisexual freedom fighter, um, who, was, uh, who, was, uh, who, was, uh, who was also a prison activist and anarchist. Um, you know, and so um, since I was a, so, you know, but before I get to that part of the story, um, you know, I was raised in Harlem. Uh, I'm the son of, um, you know, the, the, I'm the first generation New Yorker, um, raised by two parents who came up to New York during the Great Migration in the 1960s. Um, I grew up in uh, Harlem in, 19, in, the, in the late 70s. I was born in the late 70s. Um, so, you know, sort of transformation, you know, of, of Harlem through the, through the lens of, like, the discovery of hip-hop, the crack epidemic, um, all that, and all that, you know, led to me to be very politicized. And around 1992, during the Los Angeles Rebellion, um, you know, I became quickly more politicized at that time. Um, if you were growing up in Harlem at that time in the 19, like, 1990s, you know, saying, like, Harlem was very sonic. So, like, you know, so, so things like, you know, so, you know, the ways that we saw... Um, uh, felt, you know, revolution and we felt politics was through our ears. So it was through, like, listening to Public Enemy, listening to, like, you know, Malcolm X mixtapes that were sold by, like, 5%ers after school, um, you know, listening to speeches sometimes on, on the street corners, even though there was few, few and far between, having people try to sell you black nationals newspapers. And so all this kind of came to me in the fore when I was a teenager, and when I was a teenager, I became like, you know, you know, I, I you know, I joined a Marxist organization um, and that was the start of my political life. And also, consequently, like I started my writing, my writing life, um, I wrote for publications and I had to like, you know, I was both a writer and a newspaper seller. So I had to write and I had to also sell the newspaper, which meant like I could get immediate understanding of people's um, words. Oh, my words. Um, when I just talked to them about trying to sell the newspaper and like, you know, what words made sense and what words didn't make sense. And so I met my audience on the street. And that was always kind of stuck to me in terms of like my artistry as a writer. Um, luckily, I've been able to stay in New York City all my life. I went to Hunter College, was a part of another group, another student uh, group to defend the City University of New York. Um, and then fast forward. Um, 2008, I was a um, program director at the Breck Forum, which was a left cultural center, radical left cultural center that was located in West Beth in the West Village. 
there I had an opportunity to work with like you know different people, um, organize art shows for political prisoners, film film programming. Um, I had a chance to work with Red Channels, which was an excellent um, endeavor with Matt Peterson, um, and continue that work, um, you know, up until this day, um, you know, looking to fuse culture, politics, and like you know, and, and liberation, um, and you know, and a lot of the people with whom that you were going to be talking about today. Were, were deeply influential in my uh, understanding and my upbringing, you know, intellectually. But there's also this, uh, you know, black radical tradition of like, you know, dozens if not hundreds of people who influenced me. Um, not, not also including my family and my parents and my everybody who uh, influenced me on this journey. Journey. So I'm deeply grateful. Yeah. And I'm grateful to be here today. Yeah. Thanks so much for joining us. Um, we've got a lot to cover, so I wanna to try to get into it and make sure we have lots of time just to talk about you know, your experiences, your perspectives on the uprising that, that's, going, that's unfolding right now and uh, a lot of the, the really salient questions of the black radical tradition in the United States, uh, which is, of course has been in the news recently, black Marxism specifically has been in the news, not because of the obvious racial class divisions of those worst affected by coronavirus, nor the black-led proletarian insurgency that struck terror in the hearts of the bourgeois in the late spring, but because of a canceled Zoom call, a neoliberal <laughs> politician's estranged father, and Angela Davis's political endorsement. Not her politics <laughs> itself, but her political endorsement. Oh, boy. Um, so we're going to try to do a brisk run, uh, a shamefully brisk run, through the American black radical tradition, focusing on some key moments and thinkers and we'll try to do it in like the first hour of the show, but you like feel free to jump in and add anything you want. Um, and then, yeah, some of the questions we want to try to think about, maybe we won't answer them specifically, uh, is how does the fight for racial justice factor into the fight against capitalism? Are they the same fight? Are black nationalism and anti-colonialism compatible with a communist position that seeks to dissolve all nations? Are police murders more an issue of class, white supremacy, or equally both? What does Black Lives Matter mean in a Marxist sense? So, lots to cover. And we'll begin with uh, Sean. Oh, hi. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I want to do a little historical prelude to this, you know, that I really do enjoy my history, and hopefully you folks do too. I want to just add to what Andy said, um, you know, the... On the black radical tradition, you've seen in the news a lot since this uprising, uh, media media stories and politicians talking about trained Marxists who are bringing a dangerous ideology into the black community. Well, the right is talking about them, right? The liberals are pretending like an insurrection did not happen. Right. Yeah, it's just protests. Just just peaceful protests, they were saying, when in fact, of course, we all saw with our own eyes the the most massive uh, multiracial working class uprising the United States has seen in decades. So I think that it, it makes sense to um, to recenter and resituate our understanding of this event within that larger uh, tradition, because otherwise politicians and the media are going to try to turn it into a frankly racist uh racist and uh, demoralizing tactic of taking all agency away from black and POC people today and also in the past. So when we, we think about this tradition, we, of course, as everything in American history, can't divorce it from the colonial period and the period up to the Civil War. 
when we're talking about the black radical tradition, we're not just talking about practice, but we're also talking about theory, right? We're not just talking about groups on the ground. We're also talking about leadership, both intellectually and, of course, politically at the same time. So it bears mentioning, of course, that part of, I mean, not the entirety, but part of what first the slave system and second the Jim Crow system was, was the conscious attempt to ensure that a radical black leadership uh, uh, organization and, and thinkers did not arrive. And so if we look back through the Jim Crow period and before, it's kind of a little astonishing how little there is, and that's because all those millions of black Americans in the United States and the Caribbean had forcibly their literacy taken away from them, and also any attempt to create their own organic leadership destroyed by you know, the, the, uh, the, the racial system. So if we, if we bring ourselves up past the Civil War into the period of Reconstruction, and Jamie is going to be talking about W.B. Du Bois. Um, no, I'm not. I am, yeah. As, as, we, as, we, <laughs> as we get up past... Uh, and I might, I'll probably talk about him too, but uh, it's Andy's section. Continue. All right. In the, in, the, in the late 19th century, you had, and we're going to talk about him, uh, W.E.B. Du Bois, who really becomes this first leading light of the uh, black uh, radical tradition in the United States. But you also had a gentleman by the name of Booker T. Washington, who I, still is, I think is still a pretty famous figure. Um, if the black Marxist and black radical tradition is at one pole, uh, Booker T. Washington is on the other. He had a group called the uh, National Negro Business League, and he was calling for black capitalism, and his philosophy is, was one of uplift. And he became the real, um, the, the main wellspring of leadership in black America until, until the early 20th century with the rise of the double, uh, NAACP. So to the extent that um, black people in this country were allowed to imagine what their liberation and freedom could look like in the period between the 1860s and the early 20th century, it had to look like essentially a petty bourgeois ideology. It had to be about, as Booker T. Washington wanted to do, um, using industry, thrift, intelligence, and property, as he said, <laughs> within the black community in order to uplift themselves to become the kind of responsible, reasonable members of society who could be let in by the white power structure into the arrest of American life. So it was about saying, well, basically, like, eventually the white people are going to let us in, not if we cause any trouble, not if we try to break the bonds of Jim Crow, but if we just become the kind of petty bourgeois shop owner or intellectual or talented 10th type individual who will then be deemed respectable enough by white society to be brought in. And while Booker T. Washington is very much dead and has been for about 100 years, I think this black capitalism and uplift philosophy is still very, very much a, um, a meme uh, and a current in today's society if you look at the culture or certainly if you look at the blue check marks uh, on Twitter and the media class. Oh, boy. Very much, very much interested in this kind of vision of freedom. What do you think, Kazembe? Booker T. Washington? Yeah, I mean, just to go into it a little bit, I mean, I think that some of the things you said um, make sense. I think some things require a little bit more context. So, you know, it's important to note that Booker T. Washington is a, ch a child of slavery, and and that you know, and you know, and that you know, when we're talking about black leadership, um, before that, before Booker T. Washington, before I even get into Booker T. Washington, 
there was Frederick Douglass and there was Harriet Tubman. That's right. You, you know what I'm saying? And I think that, you know, Frederick Douglass, you know, um, you know, exemplifies like not only the black radical tradition, but a lot of the the meaning of 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 the Hegelian dialectic when you talk about master slave. So, you know, so when you're talking about the the actual actual actualization of, you know, Hegel talks about the master projecting, you know, his desires upon the slave and the slave, you know, seeking freedom or the risk of life, you know, or it's challenging freedom. I mean, literally, Frederick Douglass, you know, Cole Cox, two pieces, punches in the mouth, a slave breaker by the name of Kobe, you know, and then runs away from bondage. Um, and then becomes one of the most articulate orators of 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 of, of, the, of, of the anti-slavery movement, the abolitionist movement. When you talk about Harriet Tubman, you know, you know, Harriet Tubman was somebody who escaped slavery, but also went back like dozens of times to rescue more slaves. And, and not only did that, but also was a general. She was a scout. She was somebody who was very important in terms of union forces, in terms of breaking the rebellion, breaking the, the Confederacy. Um, you know, the modern black feminists, uh, 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 the Kabahi River Collective named their statement after a battle that she had led at the Kabahi River in South Carolina. My parents are from Charleston, not too far from Kabahi. Um, and so, and then even before that, right, you have to talk about the Haitian Revolution. Um, you know, the first revolution to occur, um, you know, in the Western world, in the first Black Republic. You know, and this is a this is this is a revolution that 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 in which they drew off the shackles of the French. Um, you know, a, you know, a peasant army led by, you know, Toussaint L'Ouverture. And also uh, Dessalines um, overthrew uh, the French French imperialism and produced the first Black Republic, in which the United States never forgave them for. To this day, Haiti's in debt, you know, you know, occupied by the United States, but also in debt to France right. for overthrowing for overthrowing slavery. So I think that in a lot of ways, before Booker T, before we get to Booker T. Washington, there was a, a Black radical tradition. That preceded him. That was also um, the, the foundations of like all black institutions, like the African Methodist Episcopal Church. Um, the first public school that was founded in New York City was a it was a, the new there was an African free school. Um, there was like you know anti-slavery societies. There were ways in which like black people were creating a dual power within the United States to challenge. Uh, the slaveocracy, right? And this kind of this this ultimately cultivates culminates in the Civil War, um, you know. And you know, and and you know, in the Civil War, obviously there were like multiple sides in terms of fighting in the Civil War. Um, oftentimes, Lincoln is linked is is, is is spoken to as a great emancipator of the slaves, but he was pushed to that position. We have to remember that in his debate with Douglas, he says that. You know, he didn't care whether or not slavery was abolished. He wanted to keep the union together, right? And so, 
but he's pushed by people like Douglas and by the anti-abolitionist movement in, in England to finally sign the Emancipation Proclamation 1863, which only goes as far as freeing those slaves that are um, already, uh, those, those counties are already in rebellion, right? And the reason I'm bringing this all up because it just sets us up for Booker T. Washington. So the context in which you're bringing it up in terms of Booker T. Washington is that is that the Booker T. Washington emerges at the at the tail end when Booker when Frederick Douglass dies, and also the defeat of what they call Reconstruction, right. which was the period of time in which um, black people were able to like exercise themselves in democracy. So Booker T. Washington is operating in a very specific context. In terms of what he's in terms of what he's doing and what he's kind of um, promulgating um, in regards to uh, you know what you mentioned in terms of black folks being industrious, uh, rejecting um, all these these trappings of political power because at that time black people had lost all political power in the South. They had lost the franchise through Clantera and through the, the reinstitution of Jim Crow laws. And so Booker T's like response was that of like wanting to see around survival. But what happens is this what happens is interesting, right? Is that there's a new generation, and ironically, this is a generation that Booker T Washington names called the New Negro. And the New Negro generation is the generation that's the first generation that's born out of slavery. And this is where the generation that you find the, the more re- rebellious challenges to the to, to black order to, to the US racial order in this intellectual growth and specifically that is found in the personage of W.E.B. Du Bois right um, who's like you know who's not from the south uh, he's, he's born in Great Barrington Massachusetts and but he goes to the south you know and he does a reverse migration not north not south to north but north to south to 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 do his intellectual work and this is where things get interesting, right? And I think that one of y'all are going to talk about beat, uh, uh, the boys, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in regards to that, right? Yeah. So uh, just jumping in with a couple of things that you said. Um, first of all, uh, I, I recently read uh, John Brown, Abolitionist, by um, David Sheldon. I think his name was, and, and he right. and, and he talks about. There's one scene where he was uh, exchanging letters, I think, with Tubman, and uh, referred referred to her as a, a great general who he. He was hoping to have this like uh, slave insurrection alongside. You also learn a lot in this book about how um, you know John Brown was really seen as crazy at the time, and he still is referred to as being crazy because, first of all, because he did believe that white people and black people were equal, which was not a new concept in the history of the United, uh, of the U.S. and, and the, the colonies. Du Bois talks about in Black Reconstruction about how there were there were periods earlier in the 19th century when there was like more formal equality and that was like being rolled back uh, as slavery entrenched itself. Uh, but that uh, John Brown as this abolitionist who really believed in literal equality, um, that was what was seen as crazy. That in addition to, you know, wanting to launch this uh, slave insurrection. Um, but those kinds of ideas became so popular and, and sort of like, uh, it inspired essentially this anti-racist revolution within the Civil War that pushed Lincoln into the Emancipation Proclamation and also pushed this kind of revolutionary zeal amongst Union troops and amongst Southern slaves to revolt in the name, in this, in this like beautiful vision of, of, uh, of like uh, racial solidarity. 
Uh, and a, one of Du Bois' uh, really amazing claims in Black Reconstruction is that part of what destroyed the Confederacy, I think you mentioned this, was a, a general strike of slaves. Yeah, so I mean the general, so I mean the general strike of slaves is is certainly what destroys the the, the Confederacy, and it's it's important to know what that general strike was. So once the Emancipation Proclamation is issued, um, and and the Union Army has the ability to start to free uh, enslaved Africans, um, what you notice is that um, many of the enslaved Africans were withdrawing their labor from the Confederacy and joining the Union Army, um, you know, and, and acting as workers and as spies and cooks for the Union Army. They would run, literally run with their families to Union, uh, to Union, uh, to Union uh, forts and to Union lines and things of that nature. And this actually, like, led to the collapse of the Confederacy, um, you know, so without that black labor, um, the Confederacy could no longer uh, fight the war. Um, and so, and not only in that context, but the very fact of the matter is, is that um, the first black uh, free regiment, which is developed, which Frederick Douglass was very influ influential in forming, also informs and helps to overcome and overthrow the, um, the slaveocracy. And so all these things are happening and not in, the, you know, in this, a whole story about the international scene and like the embargo of England and the ability for the Confederacy to, to put an international trade. But it's really that you said this kind of this kind of once the Civil War begins to have this political character, character right, and it becomes an anti-slavery war. Then you know, what I'm saying you see that the, the the tides are turned and the Union is able to win. Um, you know, and and actually uh, have uh, you know and actually defeat slavery. Um, and, you know, which is, of course, uh, you know, um, we're, you know, um, probably the, one of the greatest uh, his, world historical uh, events of all time. I mean, we talk about monuments. I mean, actually, I think that, you know, um, you know, it was powerful this year to be celebrating Juneteenth in 20 in 2020. But previously, I mean, we can go years without even an acknowledgement of the fact that, you know, slavery was abolished in this country. I mean, the abolishment of slavery in this country should be a, a week-long holiday. I mean, they should Macy's should be having fucking sales and shit. <laughs> like, you know what I'm saying? Like, I don't know. Like, whatever the this country celebrates. Like, you know what I'm saying? It's like, it's like yeah, and, you should be, you should and, be happy. <laughs> and to the extent that it is acknowledged, it's often connected with Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation, which, you know, is a part of the story. But I think the importance of Du Bois, especially, uh, and this, like, brings us back to, to like, his uh, debate with Washington— is that uh, it wasn't just like, you know, the the people Lincoln came around to the abolitionist position. We're talking about the self-emancipation and the agency of black workers and slaves and free black people uh, to actually fight back. And so while, yeah, Du Bois isn't, you know, the beginning of the black radical tradition, of course, I, he's, he's foundational to black Marxism because he offers this popular interpretation. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, absolutely. 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 So on the topic of Du Bois, I have a couple things here. Um, another really important uh, intervention he made was in sort of historicizing the invention of whiteness, because as we all know, these are not uh, biological 
categories mm-hmm. that have existed since the dawn of time. They're relatively recent inventions, the idea that there are white people and black people and that those people are different in various ways. Um, this was a thing that was invented um, in the early United States uh, as part of slavery. Du Bois describes the wages of whiteness as a public and psychological wage given to those designated as white and withheld from others in order to keep white workers on the side of the bosses, basically. Um, And there were some real material benefits that this conferred upon people who got to be white. Um, But, you know, those material benefits, uh, they did not stick stick around for forever. And then the system had to convince white workers that whiteness was a benefit in and of itself. Uh, So how did they do that? And how durable do we think this idea is? And how do we how do we fight back against it? I, you know, to tell you the truth, I mean, like, I, I, I don't really, I don't, I don't really have, I mean, I know there's folks like Nolan Notch here who have been, uh, you know, producing and thinking through, like, ideas around whiteness and stuff like that. And also, I mean, like, you know, like, folks like Jeff Perry, you know, who've been, like, writing about this for, like, numbers of years. And, you know, and, like, I know this, I mean, I'm not as familiar with those various debates, but I would say, I, what I would say is this, and it's, and it's very simple to me. I mean, like Karl Marx said, it's like, you know, you know, you know, wh- white labor can't be free where black skin is branded. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, I mean, so, I mean, so as long as black people are oppressed in this country and we're facing oppression, you know, saying that there's always going to be a drive towards dispossession and a, a push towards uh, against the ability for white folks to be free. You know, and I think that to me, you know what freedom actually looks like. You know is is you know is is very is very apparent. I mean, but I think I mean to me, I think this is a question for me that really hits into like this question of racialization, because I think one thing for me, and if you read the works of Cedric Robinson and you read the works of like, you know, folks who are talking about racialized capitalism, um, racialized capitalism happens. You know, it doesn't start with the contact of Europe to Africa. It actually starts internally within Europe, right? And so, within the context of feudalism, there's a whole entire question around racial racializing groups today that would be considered white, but they were racialized, right? Under a feud, under under the feudal system, but that was something that was actually um, conjoined alongside capitalism and became globalized. So, for people like you know, for like people like you know. Cedric Robinson, they start and they start thinking about whiteness and the question around racialization, you know, within Europe. And I think that this is interesting too, because I think that, you know, whiteness in this country has always been a contested space. Um, what is what it, what what does it mean to be white in this country? I think is much more contested than we actually uh, have. Um, if I can just do on a pop pop culture reference really quickly. Um, I was watching this uh, this this TV show. Um, I think it was called Swamp People. Um, you know, and it was about like a group of like white people who are like in the, I guess they were in the Everglades or in like, you know, in some sort of like backwater or something like that, some sort of rural area, excuse me, rural, rural area. And, and, the, and the TV show called them like Swamp People. And I was like, why, why did they call the show Swamp People, not White People? <laughs> right, 
you know, saying and like, you know, and saying like, like, you know, saying like, what, what makes these people outside the frame of whiteness? Right. Um, you know, and so, you know, so they've been racialized, right, in in a particular way, you know, and I think that even when we talk about something like white trash, you know, or like, you know, or we, or we look at like where white poverty is the most, where is white poverty the most um, stringent? It's where there was the most slavery. Right. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? So like, you know, so like, this idea of like whiteness being some sort of, you know, innocent marker outside of what's happened with black folks is, is, is just not true. I think that, you know, we do have a common destiny and there's a part of our solidarity, but I think that what, I think that, you know, um, you know, um, and so this is so, but I think that, I think that the thing that what confuses people, right. Is that, that just because we have just because that that there's that space of solidarity doesn't necessarily mean that black people and white people have the same needs because something happened to us as 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 a, as a people as black people during the course of slavery which is transformative right and so i think that that is where people get confused but if you look at it like racialization is part of capitalism you know does that make sense yeah, yeah the, the two of them rose kind of co-equal at a certain point in time as a as a sort of as i understand it, an ideology that that had to ascribe certain characteristics to to certain people because there was a hierarchy a hierarchy of domination and exploitation so instead of saying like we're uh, everybody's equal and we're just doing this to some people as opposed to other. The idea was that the people who are doing the worst labor, the people who have the least freedom, the people who are black slaves taken from Africa, they are necessarily lower than. And so this racialized system arises out of this ideology of uh, growing capitalism and the need for a racial underclass to do the most brutal, the most, uh, uh, the most exploitative labor possible, and it's an explanation for why that's natural and just. Yeah, and you know, capital benefits from having a segmented working class. Uh, I think for a lot of reasons, uh, black liberation is kind of the skeleton key to unraveling and challenging the power of capitalism in America, and you know. In other places as well, because as long as uh, white workers believe they have more in common in the terms of their interests with the bosses and with the system than they do with their black fellow workers, then, you know, uh, we're not going to get anywhere. And this is ultimately the question that W.E.B. Du Bois is posing when he talks about the wages of whiteness, because he's asking, why is it that poor white workers and poor black workers in this reconstruction period and after don't unite in their common class interests. And what he argues is that, you know, they both might have shitty wages, but the white workers in the Jim Crow South um, get a psychological wage from uh, being able to demand deference from and to uh, be brutalizing to a 
class of people who are lower than them. So the psychological wage is to, to feel good about yourself as a white person in the South by being able to kick somebody else into the gutter when you feel like it. And don't forget, too, um, a lot of poor whites did not necessarily side with the white aristocracy, but there arose this kind of middle class of middle class whites who uh, also did not own slaves or property for the most part, but they did things like um, overseeing and police work and they managed the the potential for conflict there, which kind of reminds me of modern discourse around the professional managerial class. And also to cops too. Open that bag <laughs> of potato chips and certainly cops. Um, that kind of leads me to something else I was going to say, which is, um, Du Bois wrote about this real missed opportunity for the U.S. labor movement, some of whom were even socialists, especially um, immigrants from England and Germany, to connect with the abolitionist movement and seriously challenge the system. And we see it in all of the contradictions that took place in, in the Civil War. You know, there were white workers who wanted to keep slavery out of these new lands that they'd migrated to in the West because they didn't want to have to compete with slave labor. But then there were white workers who were like, well, if they free the slaves, we're going to have to compete with them on the, the wage labor market. So, like, it just seems so clear to me that capitalism it was the thing they really needed to overthrow if they were going to uh, resolve these contradictions. But um, Du Bois says that abundant free land in the West played a role in this because it was kind of a pressure valve for this uh, potential class struggle. And he said, uh, the wisest of the leaders could not clearly envisage just how slave labor in conjunction and competition with free labor tended to reduce all labor towards slavery, which is what you were just talking about. So... Can we unpack that a little? Is there an alternate history where the American Civil War becomes a proletarian revolution? Or maybe not? Yeah, I mean, I will, I mean, like, I think Terry Bison wrote this really great book called Fire in the Mountain. That's actually a great alternative history of the Civil War where, like, Ooh. you know, black slaves, like, you know, form and, you know, develop, uh, you know, new Africa. And that becomes a backbone of a socialist revolution in America. And I think that you know, I think that the question around like land redistribution is a is a right one because I think that the demands that you know black you know like African Americans and black folks had after the Civil War was that of like you know universal suffrage and like you know and land rights right forty acres and a mule right and imagine if like you know the ability the ability of the United States if we went deeper into the Civil War and that you know it, it became a class conflict. You know, it would have, you know, you know, what would have happened if there was a radical redistribution of land, you know, saying across the across the board, you know, um, you know, um, you know, and know, and I'm saying that obviously, you know, with the acknowledgement that, you know, at this, at, you know, at, 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 at no point of this is that, you know, we're talking about like the role of the indigenous folks in the ways in which they suffered. So I think that, you know, also. It's important that, you know, as we're talking about these racial categories, that we also acknowledge the fact that Native Americans, you know, suffered throughout, you know, primarily because they refused to be slaves, you know, and primarily because the, the land was so, the land was so, the, the land was so sought after that the U.S. government and, and, you know, white people, you know, committed some of the worst genocide in human history. Yeah. against our Native American brothers and sisters. In order to have you know, that pressure so valve of land, you had to expropriate. You know, you know yeah. I can just re, re, reimagine, like, 
what would that be like in terms of rethinking what um you know what uh what what America and uh, land like you know what would land like what would land take you know someone would have meme today and I, I'm gonna bring it back today someone would have meme today it's like you know you know would we have so many fires in California if you know if, if we had obeyed um you know our treaty rights and and like allowed Native Americans to be land stewards um I don't know I, I think I think there would have been a difference in terms of like how how we turned out environmentally. I do know that, you know, the, the the push towards the West and the push towards Mississippi required a massive amount of deforestation um, alongside slavery and enslavement, which is which has laid rack and laid the, the, the path work for the environmental crisis that we lead today. So be so but I think I think that what we're asking ourselves in all these historical questions and all these kind of like ponderings is is that is like, like, what was, what, you know, what could have been different, right? You know, I was like, how did we get here in this particular moment? And how does that shape our understanding of, in terms of our, 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 our understanding of where we are in, in the Pacific moment? And again, like, I go back to Cedric Robinson because I think Cedric Robinson's work um, is this kind of like cultural intervention in terms of like gathering that kind of historical memory and writing that critique says this, right? And I may repeat this later on in the, in the broadcast, but you know, when you talk about the boys and these people who are writing, um, you got to understand that they didn't really go to uh, Barnes and Nobles and go to the Black Study section and pick up a book and be like, "Oh, here's the book about Black people and Native Americans. Let me put this up and like write my chapter on it." They actually had to like create this work, right? Um, and so when you're talking about this, this imaginative, right, possibility, like this is what the power Du Bois was dealing with in terms of like the alternativeness of his, of his vision within like black reconstruction, because at the time he's writing black reconstruction, um, you know, um, you know, what movies are coming out at that time? It's like the first major motion picture in the U.S. history, Birth of a Nation, Right. Um, what Which kind of books an, are coming out? Self and time? alternative history. Um, right. Yeah, the whole turn of yeah, the whole turn of current of history. Like what books are coming out at that time? You know, like you know, like tons of books showing Gone with the Wind. You know, um, you know. So Du Bois is writing that turn of current is writing against the wind of like of like you know official U.S. history, and you know what I'm saying so there's some so so there's so there's definitely a, a racial there's definitely an imaginative a liberatory imaginative that's going into that history that he's right. So he's also writing in the 1930s, thinking through all the general aspects are happening, all the proletarian uprisings that are happening, all the, the battles that are happening within the Soviet Union at the time are happening. That's all in black reconstruction, right? And so all that alternativeness you're talking about is there, it's present, right? And in the, in the, in like, you know, the same way we're having these conversations now about what can be possible, I think Du Bois is doing that right there too. You mentioned the Soviet Union, and that's a really good jumping off point to talk about another luminary of the black radical tradition, who is Harry Haywood, who was a member at one time of both the Communist Party USA and also the uh, Communist Party of the Soviet Union. He lived in the Soviet Union for five years. He um, 
<clears throat> was attracted to. He comes out of the uh, kind of pan-Africanist movement, the African Blood Brotherhood he was part of, which is uh, like a West Indian and African-American association of socialists uh, who called for militant self-defense during the race riots of 1919. Uh, Harry Haywood uh, becomes more and more drawn to socialism and especially to the promise of the Bolshevik Revolution, of the revolution in Russia, uh, which he saw as the sort of this, this emancipatory moment for the people of Russia and for a global proletarian revolution. So he becomes a communist, and not just a communist organizer, but also a thinker. And it's his influence in the United States and the Communist Party and also in Russia that really focuses the Communist International, the Comintern, and how they understand um, how black liberation is tied to global uh, proletarian revolution. So without going into Haywood's entire history, um, basically <clears throat> this whole question of, of what is the relationship between the particular struggle of black Americans and the international struggle from a Marxist perspective <clears throat> was posed at that time just as it is today. And what Haywood did in crafting the line for the CPUSA and the Comintern was to say that black people in the South, in what was called the Black Belt, represent a nationality, right? They have all of, under you know, the ideas of Marxism-Leninism, all the characteristics of a separate nation within the United States. So therefore, uh, not only were, uh, was the black freedom struggle in the United States essential to changing um, the, the political and social makeup of the U.S., it was also tied into this wave of anti-colonial struggles that were being seen all over the globe at that point. So really, the, the black struggle was part of an international struggle. So basically, you know, here's, here's actually a, a quote from the, from the Communist International Congress of 1922. The black question has become an essential part of the world revolution. The Communist International has already recognized what worthwhile help the colored people of Asia can provide in the semi-colonial countries. It views the assistance of our black, oppressed black fellow human beings as absolutely necessary for proletarian revolution and the destruction of capitalist power. For these reasons, the Fourth Congress... Uh, applies special responsibility to the wave of anti-colonial struggles tying black Americans to struggles in Africa, the Middle East, and Asia. And so the way that this line comes about is that Haywood is arguing against other people in the communist and the social, socialist movement who are saying two things. One, that the fight for black liberation uh, would have to wait for a global revolution in order to be confronted, and also that uh, racism and discrimination were merely moral problems, right? Uh, the idea was to look at the political economy for Haywood and others and to understand that these parts of the South, you know, that, that black Americans are still living in, even if there's a great migration happening in the teens and 20s, uh, they're coming out of a semi-feudal environment. And so it's essential that they join in the rest of these semi-feudal struggles that exist around the globe uh, in order to, to basically overthrow the entire system. So what do you think about the, um, this line here? Because the, we know in the 1920s and into the 1930s, A, that this idea of, uh, of 
of a black national resistance and the creation of a of black nation in the in the south part of america was very controversial and it became a huge sectarian question but also the communist party in the united states was able to do some really great on the ground organizing with uh, black working class people and sharecroppers through tenants unions, sharecroppers unions, and labor unions. So what do you think about this uh, this moment and Harry Haywood? Yeah, I think it's like, I mean, I think, I mean, thank you so much for that, that layout. I mean, I think that's what you laid out was really like kind of, you know, you know, choose your form. I mean, and, and I mean, and I don't have much to add to it. Um, what I think about it is that I think that, you know, Harry Hayward's um, analysis is a good jumping off point. But I think that a lot of times, like, you know, you have to put it in, you have to put it into the context of the time. Right. Which is like, in a lot of ways, um, this, the, the revolution that's happened in Russia is also an anti-colonial revolution. Right. So Russia or the, the Soviet Union at that time was known as a, the prison house of nations. Um, right. There were like many different nationalities um, within the Soviet banner, um, and many different minorities, right? And during that period of time, um, there's tremendous interest amongst like African Americans um, on the question of racial oppression in the Soviet Union. Um, so, for example, um, um, you know, in addition to Harry Hayward, you have the poet Claude McKay, who also speaks at that Congress, right? Um, the, the Caribbean poet. Um, a little later on, uh, Louise uh, Patterson alone and Langston Hughes lead a delegation of actors and, and black uh, writers to do a film about black oppression in the United States in the Soviet Union. Ultimately, that film is not produced, um, but um, so, uh, Langston Hughes has the opportunity to travel throughout uh, Kyrgyzstan, and in other um, um, parts of Asia, of Asian parts of the Soviet Union, to write and to think about this idea of racial equality. Um, you know, uh, you know, Paul Robeson travels throughout. Um, you know, these same parts. You know, um, the the singer and actor. And so, at least in terms of the imaginary of African Americans, the Soviet Union's ability to start dealing with ideas around racial inequality, not only in terms of, uh, you know, um, the question of rights, but also the question of peoplehood, right, um, becomes very attractive. And, and this is a lot of ways in which Harry Haywood is actually writing and thinking through his own, uh, his own, his own, uh, his, own uh, his own thesis around what we call it the Black Belt thesis, what's known as the Black Belt thesis. And I should say the Black Belt piece is not is not black because of the people, it's black because of the soil, mm -hmm. right? Um, the agrarian belt in which the 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 the, the um, which at that time a majority of African Americans uh, lived in, and so there was a call, at least in terms of Harry Hayward at one point, to say, well, you know, if there is in fact a, a revolution in America. Black people have the right to self-determination and to create a Negro republic, right? Um, and I think that's something you allude to, that the right to create uh, a Soviet Negro republic within the larger U.S. Soviet, right? Um, and, you know, and this is based upon, you know, um, common territory, common land, 
common experiences in, um, you know, in like the agrarian poll in which many black people have, right? Um, today, I think that, you know, this would be challenged for a number of reasons. One of the reasons that even though a majority of, of African-Americans like still live in the South, I think it's 55% of African-Americans still live in the South, uh, a significant number of those people who live in the South and li uh, or live in the country live in large cities. So the stereotype question of agrarianism is also challenged. But also this idea about what nation is, is also what is up to up to, to, to contention. Because I think a lot of times people get tripped up around this issue around separation of the nation, right? And, this, and people get very frothy at the mouth. I've been in a number of different conferences where people get really angry around this question because they think it means a black separatism. When I think that for a lot of black intellectuals and a lot of black activists, it's not a question of just na not question just nationalism, but a question of peoplehood, right? Respecting the peoplehood of African Americans that we are in fact a people with a with a, with a distinct culture, um, based upon our experiences with you know we're based on experiences within this country, and I think that you know once you have that understanding of like respecting the peoplehood of African Americans, right? Then you can start getting into the question around like how do you deal with the, you know, questions around culture, questions around language, questions around discrimination, these type of things, right? And not seeing these things as um, secondary to the African American experience, but central to the African American experience and also central to the ways in which we've, we've been oppressed, right? Um, you know, uh, you know, um, I can I can tell you I can tell you right now that you know, um, you know, um, it's 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 rare for an African American student to get a question around hip hop on the standardized exam, right? <laughs> um, you know, um, but you know, I know that I got questions around Bob Dylan. <laughs> on my AP history, uh, my AP history exam, overrated. I scored hundred. I scored hundred on that exam, and I scored hundred on that exam, right? And why did I score hundred on that exam? Because I happened to go to a, you know, a left wing summer camp that sang Bob Dylan songs all summer long. <laughs> that was fortunate. Yeah, so that's the lucky, the luck of the draw, right? right. But every single person in my class, I went to school that was ninety eight percent black, and Latino. Everybody got the Bob Dylan question wrong, except me. In fact, in fact, it was it was it was so incredible. All the teachers in the teachers' lounge talked about me. <laughs> wow! They you thought know, you they were, were going like, oh like, like, to be the bridge to actually get people hey, into Bob Dylan. Is like <laughs> Bob Dylan question right? Everyone got it wrong. I wonder he's a, he's a genius. He's so smart. <laughs> he's so this. He's a talented. You need to give. A special class for him, <laughs> and it's not right? a matter of smarts. It's just about cultural literacy, right? No, yeah, but it was, yeah. It was exactly. But it was a question around cultural literacy. How did he right? know that the answer and was so, blowing so, in so, the wind? And, and so, and so, in that moment, right? My, you know, like you know, a peoplehood of a certain group of people was considered valid enough to be a question or exam. But imagine, like you know, it's like the same thing with you know on Jeopardy, right? They have this joke around Black Jeopardy. Whenever they ask a black question on Jeopardy, everyone gets the answer wrong. 
right? Yeah. So these, so these, so these, so these, so these questions are on. So I'm saying this in a kind of funny way to kind of explain to you that these questions are on peoplehood and culture, and how we are as as human beings is very integral. So again, Harry Haywood doing the sociological work, right? Of like you know, and the thing about the amazing about Harry Haywood, he actually creates a map, right? He creates a map and a census. So when is 2020? We're in the middle of the census. And what does Harry Haywood do for the Soviets? He creates a map and a census of black people, which is also like something we take for granted. But that was something that was really unique and new in regards to like thinking through like issues around who we are as a people. It says like, here, here we are as a people. Here's our commonalities. Here are the ways that we've been produced. And here's what makes us distinct, you know? And here are the forces that, that, that join us. Now, to ask you another question, too, and I, you know, aside from being a little long-winded, that, you know, Haywood's, uh, uh, Haywood's approach was never to separate the, the, the black from the white. It was an understanding strategically. If you, if you organize black people and you organize them on the basis of who they are and where they're at, then you can also lay the basis of, of building enough strength to be able to organize white people, too. Mm. And so what ends up happening is that in the 1920s and 1930s, you see the first emergence within these Communist Party groupings of integrated union organizing amongst textile workers and tenant farmers and, you know, and, you know, and obviously one of the most uh, richly uh, ex- rich examples is the, the, the international support for the Scottsboro Boys. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, you know, yeah. black youth who were accused of raping black white teenagers we're facing the death, death, the, the electric chair, and the fact that international support was done. That was largely done by international. Um, uh, that was largely an inter, 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 interracial organizing. I mean, so much so that one of the women who actually accused one of the Scottsboro Boys of the assault ends up joining the Communist Party. Whoa. And like, I didn't know and like, that. you know, it's like, you know, um, is organizing along with, you know, like. The mothers of the Scottsboro boys to free their boys. Um, um, hashtag awkward. Right. Um, so, bunch of so, bunch of libs that Communist Party just do a neoliberal. I know, right? That's unbelievable. You know, like that. You know, what I'm saying like they're so they're so they're so crazy. But you know. <laughs> so uh, trying to move things along to the the post-war period, Harry Haywood ends up. Uh, I don't remember when when he does this, but he moves to Detroit at a certain point. Um, and so uh, my my presentation here, uh, I'm going to try to weave the post Trotskyist milieu around CLR James into the uh, 1967 Detroit riots and wildcat strikes into the Black Panthers, Damn. into Italian autonomy uh, in the course of uh, <laughs> You're really threading the needle there. Man. That's like Can I just go get another cup of coffee. <laughs> I'll try to be really quick. It's um, like jumping the gorge on a motorcycle of <laughs> podcasting. Yeah, we'll see if exactly. I mean, this is like this is like I feel like I'm in like like the Encyclopedia Britannica of like. <laughs> I feel like. Well, I I should say that we are reading from the Communist Research Cluster reader on the Black Radical Tradition, so this is all kind of in order there for us to uh, construct ourselves. Um, but uh, that said, it doesn't mean that what I'm about to say is going to make sense, but uh, it's, a, it's a shot, but we'll see if it works. You but, put enough caveats in there that if you do anything right now, it's going to sound great. 
Yeah, the, mm-hmm. the evil Knievel of, of uh, black radical <laughs> tradition podcasting right here. Uh, okay, so our story begins in Coyoacan, Mexico. CLR James. Oh <laughs> CLR James, a Trinidadian historian and uh, uh, Marxist, um, a, a follower of Trotsky and a, a founder of the Fourth International. And a big cricket fan. Yeah, a writer on cricket as well. Uh, he meets with Trotsky and discusses the Negro question. Um, and afterwards, he tours the United States with the SWP, SWP the Trotskyist organization there, um, moves to the United States and joins the SWP and, and splits over this question of the, the Soviet Union being, uh, you know, Trotsky says it's a deformed worker state. James says it's state capitalist. So he joins this tendency, uh, this ex-Fourth International tendency, calls itself the Johnson Forest tendency, that's like, you know, kind of parallel to Trotskyism, but inside and outside of it at different points. Uh, they move to Detroit, um, and in the 50s, there are, you really see like kind of a microcosm of the workers' movement in the United States in Detroit in the 50s, including wildcat strikes, the the the, the merger of the AFL-CIO, uh, you know, a lot to cover in the 50s, but um, the Johnson Forest tendency essentially um, creates this this new theory of what it means to be a militant communist in this era, which is not to become like to be these intellectuals leading the workers movement, leading the, the proletariat towards revolution in the traditional Marxist Leninist sense, but to observe and participate and learn and be in communication uh, with the, the working class movement and understanding what their struggles are inside the factory, outside the factory, if they're not workers, if they're subproletarian, and just kind of understand like where the struggle is headed through that kind of participation and observation. Um, so in the 60s, Detroit becomes an incredibly pivotal place um, in, in the United States workers' movement. Uh, in 1967, of course, there's uh, major riots, perhaps the largest riots in the 60s in the United States, um, that uh, you know have to do with police brutality, um, the general impoverishment of, of young black people, uh, and but they they you know get they have a lot of working class support, and they lead to wildcat strikes the next year at the Dodge Main factory in Hell 1968, yeah. and for and that leads to the formation of the. Dodge Revolutionary Union Movement, DRUM, and later the League of Revolutionary uh, Black Workers. And and a lot of the uh, revolutionary theory that's going into this kind of post-riot revolutionary period comes from the work, uh, reading the work of James, um, also, uh, I always say her name wrong, Raya Dunayevska, and uh, James Boggs, and Grace Lee Boggs. Uh, one quote from the Detroit Radical newspaper South End in 1968, uh, and this this speaks a little bit to the conversation we we're just having about Haywood. Uh, quote: We are no more for integrated capitalism than for segregated capitalism. Neither are we in favor of a separate state based on the same class lines as in society. We are against a separate state in which a black capitalist class exploits a black proletariat. Um, this doesn't represent everything everybody was saying, but there was this this very you know kind of left revolutionary c- conception. So among the major struggles of this era was uh, against automation, um, or as some drum workers called it, N-wordification. One of the really crucial books on the subject, and uh, still incredibly relevant in my opinion, was James Boggs, uh, husband of Grace Lee Boggs, uh, The American Revolution in 1963. 
from his observations of factory struggles in the post-war period, Boggs begins to describe the decomposition of the traditional working class in the U.S. as a process of accelerated automation. He's essentially saying that uh, automation is going to, you know, obviously cast a lot of people out of the workforce, you know, create this like large sub proletarian situation where people, you know, no, no longer are part of the traditional working class. The lumpen proletariat, perhaps. Yep, that's where we're headed with this. And so he says automation not only poses the questions of poverty and employment and related economic questions, it brings into sharp focus the elements which Negroes always bring with them when they struggle for their rights. It makes the question social because it poses the relations of man to man, because he believes that as more people are cast out of the labor process, there will be more kind of intersocial or antisocial tensions between, you know, a, a more and more fractured working class. And he continues, the strength of the Negro cause and his power to shake up the social structure of the nation comes from the fact that in the Negro struggle, all the questions of human rights and human relationships are posed. At the same time, the American Negroes are most conscious of and best able to time their actions in relation to the crisis and weaknesses of American capitalism, both home and abroad. The goal of the class society is precisely what has been and is today at the heart of the Negro struggle. It is Negroes who represent the revolutionary struggle for class society, not indeed the class society of American folklore in which every individual is supposed to climb to the top in order to exploit newcomers at the bottom. So from their observations of uh, the black worker struggle in Detroit, um, CLR James, Boggs, uh, etc., saw pretty clearly the direction of capitalism worldwide. We'd enter a situation in which automation was replacing the economic myth of scarcity, proletarianizing this, an entire population, but then othering large swaths of it. So these others, those cast out of the production process into the lowest rungs of society, thus become a revolutionary base. Um, so this thesis, is, in many ways, is in line with the foundational ideas uh, of the, probably the most foundational black Marxist organization in the United States, the Black Panther Party. Um, they were, you know, uh, inspired by uh, Stokely Car- Carmichael, uh, his, his uh, organizing in Lowndes County, Georgia. Uh, they were founded in Oakland, California in 1966 by Huey Newton, Bobby Seale. Um, and they were very. They became a large international group with a lot of different tendencies. But I want to highlight just three lineages of their thought for the purpose of this discussion, which is intercommunalism, self-defense, and the theory of the lumpen the lumpen proletariat as a revolutionary class. Uh, so intercommunalism was the the kind of revolutionary theory that Huey Newton asserted as like the official Black Panther Party line in 70, 70, 71 as an attempt to kind of square the circle of this question of national liberation and, and imperialism versus, you know, like a, like communal struggle. Um, and I'll put in a couple really great articles in the show notes about intercommunalism because it's a really uh, underappreciated aspect of Black Panther's thought. Um, but it's basically a non-statist internationalism. Uh, and one really great quote I like from Huey Newton is that he calls revolutionary intercommunalism the good anarchy that Marx spied far off at the end of history. Damn. Oh, hell yeah. Much better end of history than Fukuyama's. Yeah. Uh, So far more than their theory of revolution, though, the Panthers were known for carrying guns, doing cop watches, and looking really badass, kind of what the, the tactical patriot militia boogaloo boys try for today. 
but it was a real necessity for them uh, because they were they were responding directly to police violence and police murders in their communities. Uh, but this aestheticization of, and uh, and at times fetishization of violence led to a lot of conflicts within the organization, and of course a lot of grounds for repression and, you know, a lot of other radicals at the time thought they were just kind of looking like action figures rather uh, like looking more like revolutionaries um, and kind of making it seem like a specialized job. So there was a lot of tension there. Um, and, but importantly, the self-defense was not only to de- defend civil rights activists, but those violently targeted by the police in general, particularly the black underclass, the black lump and proletariat. In line with some of, the, of James and Boggs' thoughts on automation, Eldridge Cleaver wrote that automation was in the process of lumpenizing humanity and saw the proclivity of those on the borders of the lower working class and the underclass as a future revolutionary vanguard. He wrote, quote, the lumpen proletariat consists of all those who have no secure relationship or have invested no capital in the means of production or institutions of capital society who are part of a perpetual reserve in the industrial Reserve Army. Um, so this was a controversial view among uh, Orthodox Marxists. Traditionally, the lump and proletariat were considered incapable of aligning themselves with the proletariat, the, the waged working class, because they were career antisocial criminals. Um, Angela Davis argued that Marx and Engels believed them, the lump and proletariat, as capable of becoming a major fighting force for the proletariat at large. Uh, and saw this as a, uh, a potential jumping off point for a broader proletarian struggle in the early neoliberal era. She wrote from Marin Jail in 1971, especially today when so many black, Chicano, and Puerto Rican men and women are jobless as a consequence of the internal dynamic of the capitalist system, the role of the unemployed, which includes the lumpen proletariat and revolutionary struggle, must be given serious thought. Increased unemployment, particularly for the, uh, particularly for the nationally oppressed, will continue to be an inevitable byproduct of technological development. At least 30% of black youths are presently without jobs. In the context of class exploitation and national oppression, it should be clear that numerous individuals are compelled to resort to criminal acts, not as a result of conscious choice, implying other alternatives, but because society has objectively reduced their possibilities of subsistence and survival to this level. This recognition should, be, should signal the urgent need to organize the unemployed and the lumpen proletariat, as indeed the Black Panther Party, as well as activists in prison, have already begun to do. Um, so I, I think what the lineage I'm trying to draw here is that, you know, coming out of World War II, there, there's like this kind of peak of the U.S. workers' movement. There's quickly becomes like this sort of social peace in which there can be these like speed-ups and automation and capitalism can kind of rest- has restructured itself so it can begin to neuter the power of the working class and begin to cast off its most undesirable elements and replace the working class at large with this kind of uh, strata of technocrats. Um, and so the, in the 60s in Detroit and in a lot of cities in the United States, although there are these like major nonviolent civil rights struggles, there's also these major urban riots where unemployed black youth are, are fighting the police. And so could be a tension between the wage proletariat and the lumpen proletariat or like the lower rung of the, of the working class and the, uh, the underclass where there could be this tension where they're against one another, their, their class interests uh, you know, are in opposition. There's this lineage of black Marxist thought that theorizes them as 
as being able to unite and becoming a new revolutionary force. And they're specifically uh, come to this theory through their observation of life in urban areas and in the factories of Detroit. And a lot of this uh, material spreads, is incredibly popular and spreads in Europe, in Italy, throughout the, the, the emerging left, this autonomous left in Europe. And so they, they were perhaps, um, uh, you know, you could maybe learn more about the workers' movement in Detroit in, from like a, a communist newspaper in Italy than you could in the United States. Um, and this uh, great book called Detroit, I Do Mind Dying, that oh, sort yeah. of chronicles these, these few years after the 67 riots, have a lot of quotes from Italian workers uh, talking about their own situation and you know, their experience of reading about what's going on in the United States. I, I mean, I'll tell you this funny, the fun fact was that um, James Foreman, who became a member of the League of Revolutionary Black Workers, which is the, I guess, the umbrella organization of the Dodge Revolutionary Union Movement, um, was actually one of the founders of um, Black Star Media. And there's a film called Finally Got the News that was actually produced by the, by DRUM, the Dodge Revolutionary Union Movement. And at some point, um, they were actually in Italy uh, trying to do a film on Rosa Luxemburg with Jane Fonda. With, Comrade with, Jane. With black, with, with, with black uh, auto workers um, in Italy um, taking a tour of uh, Turin uh, with Jane Fonda. Um, that script never got off the ground, but somehow that script and idea ended up with uh, with uh, uh, Raina Fassbender. Um, and Fassbender was supposed to do it was a Luxembourg script, and then uh, then that didn't work out, and Margaret von Trapp ended up doing it. Um, I don't know how that changed hands or whatever, but it's a very fun fact that that there would have been a great production of Rosa Luxembourg, jointly produced by. Black um, and Italian uh, auto workers, which would have been awesome. In the in the better timeline, we would have gotten that production. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, I just wanted to throw that in there. <laughs> yeah, that that movie finally got the news is like a, a big part of the the Detroit I Do Mind Dying book. They talk a lot about what went into the making of that movie. Um, the movie itself is really great, and it's only I think it's only about forty five minutes long, and it's on YouTube. So. Uh, we'll definitely put yeah, it's, a, it's, on, it's on YouTube, and I mean, also, I mean, just the, the whole question about media. So, you know, I mean, so when I was a young person at Hunter College, um, I, I read that book, um, finally, uh, Detroit Do My Dying by uh, Dan Joe Jackson, Joe Jackson, who's you know a Greek comrade who's still living. Um, he's got to be in his nineties now. I met him a while back, um, in you know, when I was in the Brett Forum, but um. That actually, that book actually inspired me because in that book you remember that um, working class folks take over the Wayne State University newspaper, yeah. um, and actually use that, use the funds, and use the ability of the newspaper to to be a, a not just a voice of uh, the working class in 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 uh, in, in uh, of, of Wayne State University in Detroit, but Detroit generally. Um, so I mean, and so that that experience led me at one point and led a bunch of us to take over the newspaper of the college I went to and turn it into like a left a, a left project that would that you know we expanded the circulation of the newspaper from like five thousand to twenty five thousand it was handed out throughout the city in the nineties. Um, 
you know, but I came from that direct experience of like, of like what happened in Detroit in the 1960s, uh, which was like, as you mentioned, was a very, you know, um, you know, a very, you know, important place um, in terms of like, you know, black struggle, you know, not just in terms of this like, you know, groups like drum, but like this whole time, this time, you know, Detroit is probably the most, one of the most black cosmopolitan cities in the world. I mean, so you have um, the shrine of the black Madonna um, and, the, and the foundation of, uh, of groups like uh, Goal, which was founded by um, the one of some of the leaders of the what would become the, um, the the Clegg brothers, which became uh, uh, the Republic of New Africa. Um, Malcolm X gives his last speeches in Detroit. Um, in the audience for Malcolm X's speeches is Rosa Parks. Um, you know, and something that we don't talk about is Rosa Parks. We do, we definitely talk about Rosa Parks as like you know. A little old lady who was a uh, who was too tired to get up off the chair, but you know she was a community organizer, and uh, she was a you know she was a, she was she was a very committed nationalist. Um, you know we're talking about uh, people like Robert Williams, who led self black self defense units, who was also based out of Detroit for a long time, um, and then also this like cultural institutions, the shrine of the Black Madonna. Um, you know, um, and, and um, you know, Motown. Um, you know, you can't talk about the, the Detroit, um, Detroit '67 uprising without talking about Martha and the Vandals and dancing in the streets, mm-hmm. um, and all these different ways in which like black culture is interweaved throughout um, the sound and the in the in the making of, of black urban experiences. Um, one thing I do want to bring up, and I want to bring up two points around the lumpen. Um, so the thing about the lumpen, which is the thing that's very interesting, is that I think it brings us somewhat into a conversation around Franz Fanon. Um, you know, and I and I've read the needle just a little bit around Franz Fanon. So Franz Fanon, as many of your listeners know, is a, a Martinican philosopher. He goes to uh, you know, uh, he you know, he ends up going to Algeria and fighting alongside the National Liberation Front of Algeria, becomes that spokesperson. And he dies at a very early age, I believe, at 36 years old. Um, and he writes the book uh, *Wretched of the Earth*, one of the classics of the te- of, a, of the Black Radical Movement. And you know, in, in you know, in, in in the book *Wretched of the Earth*, the details his own experience of 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 not only just Algeria, but African decolonization. And in that book, he talks a lot about this idea of the lumpen. Um, you know, not so much from the perspective of of, of automation, which is a very, which I think is a very U.S.-based phenomenon, but this is more generally the question around dispossession. Um, you know, people being dispossessed from the land, uh, people being dispossessed from their own citizenship, uh, people being dispossessed from the cities they live in, right, and having like a, almost a non-citizenship status, and and so rather than um, reject these people, um, you know, you try to make them. Pr- productive and you try to make them a uh, part of the work that you need to do um and this is where i think that you have the black panther party um the black panther party which was founded by Hugh P. newton and bobby seal in 1966 um is founded in oakland um and i think it's very important that it's founded in west oakland um and the reason i say it's west oakland is because um i actually went on a tour with the anarchist philosopher Chuck Morse in Oakland. And everything that happens 
in with the Black Panther Party um, happened within a 10 block radius within West Oakland. Um, so, so, so when you're thinking about um, the Black Panther Party forming, um, you think about it in terms of geography. You have um, hundreds of thousands of Black people crammed into West Oakland. Um, they're surrounded by the police, and they're facing the sea, right? So geographically, um, the sense that they have in terms of their imaginary is one of being an occupied community, right? And so, you know, and so, and so, and so, and so in their imaginary as an occupied community, they have much more in common with what's going on in Vietnam, in the North, in the, in the Korea. And mind you, this is a post-Korean post War moment. The Vietnam War is raging. Um, there's wars of national liberation, the Cuban Revolution. So the whole idea of an international, of a broadening, of broad internationalism is a real possibility. And so the Black Panther Party saw themselves as part of that, um, you know, based upon this kind of idea that, you know, we have our backs against the wall and we have to defend ourselves. Um, and so I think in a lot of ways that, you know, when we talk about intercommunalism, and we're talking about like, you know, ideas of like, you know, what he we also talk about in terms of like the black people being an internal colony. These are all ways in which, you know, these are reflectors, reflections of, you know, the kind of experience of black folks um, in the urban centers at that time, you know, to be kind of cut off, to be surrounded, to be surrounded by the police, to be brutalized by the police in a feeling that you have your backs against the wall. Um, and then I think the last thing I would say is this, like, the, the humanity of the Black Panther Party. Um, I think that, you know, one of the things that I noticed about the Black Panther Party, and this is something that um, I, I got from a movie I just recently saw, was that they were, they were really, um, really interested in reintegrating people back into society. Um, so, like, you know, so when you think about uh, what the Black Panther Party did as an organization, Organization, um, they're like you know, like you know, you know, they would like wake up at five o'clock in the morning. Um, they would do exercises. They would exercise together. They would go, you know, to a free breakfast program, and they would go sell newspapers. And then they would do political education at night. And they lived in collective houses. So I mean, so all these actions that the Black Panther Party did, beyond like the picking up of the gun, was also a game that you know reintegrating black people back into and in, in, in through a new type of revolutionary humanity. And I think that that's what made it so attractive for young people, for young people hanging out in the street who have nothing to do with sitting around all day. It gave them a level of sense of purpose, you know, and they were seeing themselves as like, no, as political actors on a broad scale. And they were political actors on a broad scale. And to this day, many of them are like some of the most important spokespeople for our community. And I think that it gave to, in terms of like a new consciousness, similarly to the Detroit movement too. I think that, you know, they kind of emerged at a, as a, at a point where you have lots of Vietnam War veterans, a lot of people coming out of the Korean War, a lot of people coming out of the experience of being in the military. They come to Detroit with a globalized experience. And, and these experiences around being globalized and being a part of, you know, being in different communities and seeing what was happening abroad, they brought that directly to Detroit. And so they, I thought there was a level of like political sharpness 
you talked about that with folks like James Boggs and CL and uh, Gracie Boggs, who led study groups in the house, um, in their living room. Um, I had the experience of actually knowing Grace Lee Boggs. Um, met her. Hello, you still there? Yep. Real yeah, soon. yeah. Sorry. Um, sorry. So I had the experience of meeting Grace Lee Boggs when she was about one, uh, two times actually, um, and sitting in the living room that you know that um, that she she that she sat down with Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, as well as numbers of Black revolutionists. And to the day that she died, and I think she died at age one hundred. She was still meeting with young people, you know, talking ideas, talking philosophy, talking about things that were going on. And it was a very one-to-one situation that happened, you know, you know, with, with the ways in which she emerged as a kind of a, an intellectual. And, I, and I, to this day, I take examples from her from that, is that, you know, to be an intellectual, to be an organic intellectual means not just to be, not just around your idea around availability or your willingness to speak in public, but like really about creating space, right? And to create spaces for inquiry, for discussion, for debate, to, to deepen our understanding of what the world is today. And also just the commitment to your class, right? And to be to be located in a class. I'm sure, you know, the block that Grace Lee Boggs on, Grace Lee Boggs lived on was, uh, was not the best block in Detroit, is not the best block in Detroit, but she chose to stay there. Why? Because that's where the people were. And that's where intellectual service was. And I think that that's something that's really kind of bedrock in a lot of these, you know, Detroit people who are, you know, part of like this kind of revolutionary upriver from the 1960s. They were located deeply within their own sense of of the city. Um, The last thing I'll say about the question on automation, I think there's always debates around automation within the left. Um, I know there's a lot of folks who are very enamored by this thing called luxury space communism or what have you. We've talked um, about it on this show. Couldn't be us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and like I mean, I, and I always go back to what Master Ace said. With Master Ace line, Master Ace had the, the, the line in the 1990s. According to the Jetsons, there are no black people in the future. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so so like so like so I I kind of weigh. A lot of folks who talk about luxury space communism without talking about black struggle and the role of black folks, right? And so in a lot of ways, this pandemic um, is is an illustration of like luxury space communism for the few. Mm. So for so for a lot of folks who are able to order food from 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 Amazon or order food from you know Whole Foods or what have you, and have black servants bring it to you. And risk COVID to have to allow you to be relaxed, where you can be able to quote unquote work from home, right? And if you if you're not willing to have a conversation around how black labor allows for you to do that, um, that's something that's 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 like right because black labor is not going anywhere. Black labor is essential, but what we are seeing is black labor being pushed down to such a point where we have no choice but to fight back. And so before these rebellions that happened with George Floyd, there was a, a wave of rebellions that happened with black working class people in chicken factories, in, in the Amazon plants, in uh, wildcat strikes, even in the prisons, right? Wherever black folks were, when they were deeply impacted by the labor standards of this crisis, they were fighting back, right? And yeah, so there have been I think enormous that, you know, prison actions that barely got any coverage in the news. 
Exactly. You know, none of none of the coverage on the news. And I mean, I think that this is something that I think that we as a as a as a as a, as a radical left need to do better, particularly those of us who are in the northeast or in like you know these urban centers where we hear about stuff to kind of lift up and amplify what's happening to our brothers and sisters in jail, what's happening to our brothers and sisters in the chicken plantations in the south. Um, you know, there was an initiative that was started by comrades in our cooperation Jackson called People Strike to really, really kind of like amplify to talk about the potential of a general strike of, of you know against the against the against this uh against this uh this essential worker slavery that we're seeing right now. And this all all this comes out of this conversation that you brought up around like automation and like, you know, and you know, and niggerization that you talked about, the down pressing of wages, the down pressing of black living standards, the the, the onerous uh rules around rent. Um, and the, the need to like you know to, to impose rent on, on on oppressed people as they're like facing a massive unemployment. Um, we know all this, and we know that the fact that, that you know black folks are like faced with the with the with the with the, with the worsening conditions insofar as you know all this you know in terms of this dealing with like life and capitalism under this COVID nineteen crisis, but more generally. Um, so that's all to say is that you know. These ideas around the Panthers are still, and some of these ideas that are being brought up are still important. Um, and I think that these ideas around re socialization and being together with the people are super important to talk about, you know, more, particularly as now that with this crisis, uh, so many of our people are so fragmented and uh, challenged, you know, in terms of finding a community right. um, and being together. You know, saying I think that you know the idea that you know the Panthers had to like come together and like work together, but not just work together as a political, politics, politics is a, politics is a form of healing. You know what I'm saying? Politics is a form of detox. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? You know, um, politics is a form of like, you know, I said, in, you know, when I was in the, in a movement in my college, in my college years, I used to say that, you know, people are, people are like our collective, you know, you know, a lot of people came out, came out of the closet, the closet as LBGT. But a lot of people came out of the closet as transgendered. But a lot of people came out of, out of the closet of bad relationships. A lot of people came out of the closet of, of bad jobs. A lot of people came out of the closet of, of, of you know, of, 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 of bad parenting situations. So, I mean, you know what I'm saying? So that's the thing that we have to really invest ourselves in, in terms of that. And I, you know what I'm saying? I'm, and I'm thankful to the Black Panther Party. I thank them every day for what they offered. Because you know what they did, what they offered was was, a, was, a, was, a, was was so powerful that the US government had to shoot them down. The same way they shot down Martin Luther King and the same way they shot down Malcolm X. You know what I'm saying? But you know, the thing that the Mexican said, the Mexican comments said is that you may have buried us, but you didn't realize we are seeds. Taking on a job. And we got.
Don't just 